since the start of the millennium, particularly around 2000, we're getting warmer in Kentucky and we're also getting wetter in Kentucky. And because we're getting warmer, particularly during the winter season, we have seen that change in the plant zone hardiness from what was 6B for most of the state for a long period of time to now 7A for most of the Commonwealth. And that would include the Bowling Green area. In fact, even 7B conditions are creeping up now from out of Tennessee and into portions of far uh, southwest Kentucky and areas along the Tennessee line. And basically what that means is that because we're getting warmer, we are now seeing a hardiness of what was zero to minus five for vegetation during the winter season now bumped up to zero to five degrees above. That would be for zone 7A. So some of the plants and vegetation that might have been optimal for growth in 6B, well, now they may be more susceptible to cold snaps since we have jumped zones. That voice is Shane Hollandy, the outreach manager for the Kentucky Mesonet and Kentucky Climate Center. He also is a meteorologist with over 22 years of experience working in television at WBKO-TV in Bowling Green, Kentucky. Welcome back, garden enthusiast. I'm your host, Kristen Hildebrand, and today we're starting with a key segment, the weather. As we know, Mother Nature holds the reins regarding successful gardening. Shane and I will delve into Kentucky climate trends, the Kentucky Mesonet app, and the most recent change to the USDA plant hardiness zone. So grab your gardening gloves and let's dive in. Welcome to the Sunshine Gardening Podcast. This gardening show will equip and inspire avid gardeners with tips and tricks to help them navigate the gardening world. The show will also highlight specific growing requirements for seasonal plants, so the sun will shine brighter over their Kentucky garden. And now, here's that ray of sunshine, garden enthusiast and horticulture extension agent, Kristen Hildebrand, with the University of Kentucky Cooperative Extension Service. Thanks for being with us today on the podcast, Shane. I'm really glad to have you here. I know the main topic that I want to talk about with you today is about the weather. And I know that a lot of people can even start their conversation with like, how's the weather been today? And it seems like for us in Kentucky, if you look through the years, like 2021 and 2022, December, it seemed like it was cold and we got a lot of questions. And even just a couple of weeks ago in the month of January, we had some cold weather as well. So I know as your role as the outreach manager for the Kentucky Mesonet, there's probably a wealth of information that is on the Kentucky Mesonet site. And I don't know if I fully knew the potential that it did, but do you care first to talk about the weather to explain a little bit more about Kentucky Mesonet? Maybe give us a little bit of history on how it was started and some things that we might not know about Kentucky Mesonet. A sure thing, Kristen. And yes, as you mentioned, uh, weather is, I think, the number one conversation starter here in the state of Kentucky because it's so variable. We're a battleground state between the cold, dry air that swoops in from out of the Canadian prairies and the warm, moist air that moves in from out of the Gulf of Mexico. When those two clash, that's when we get some pretty active weather around here. So Kentucky Mesonet, just some history about us and who we are. We date back officially to 2006, even though our first station online did not appear until May 2007. And that's located at the Western Kentucky Farm, 
uh, the Rag Center on the south side of Bowling Green. But it was in 06 when the first bit of money was earmarked for the start of Kentucky Mazinet's system in our state by uh, Senator Mitch McConnell at the time. So from 2006 up till 2016, the first 10 years of our existence, we were funded primarily on the federal level. That changed in 2016 as we went into the hands of the state of Kentucky. So for about eight years now, most of our funding has come from the state. I say most because we still have uh, some grant money that is funneled into keeping the mezzanine around. But basically, we are the state's official weather and climate monitoring system. Now, with 79 sites strong, pushing on 80, we do plan to open up some new sites this year. We are targeting counties like Greene County for potential development along with Clay County over the east. And uh, we also have Powell County set to go online potentially later this year, along with several other counties, which we're looking at right now. There are 74 counties that have at least one mesonet site. And these sites take in things like air temperature, relative humidity, dew point, the measurement of moisture in the atmosphere, precipitation. We have gauges for that set aside from our towers, which are loaded with instrumentation, which also measure air pressure, wind speed, wind direction, solar radiation. We take that in as well, along with measurements below ground. And that would include soil temperature and moisture from two inches, four inches, all the way down to a 40 inch depths at about 60 of our 79 sites. I was going to say really interesting. I know you mentioned a few counties there that you're potentially going to add some instrumentation there. Does it just mainly to go back to funding to make those happen or does there technicians that have to make that happen too? Well, funding is part of it. Uh, these sites, because they're research grade, they don't come cheap, but uh, that's where we rely heavily on the state funds as well as the grant money that we receive here at Mesodet. But we also rely on uh, local champions, the local farmers and property owners who uh, set aside a, a small plot of land. And by small, we mean no more than about 40 feet by 40 feet approximately. And that's just big enough to erect our tower along with our precip gauge and then uh, solar panels to take in not just the solar energy, but also to help uh, energize the batteries that we have at our sites. I was going to say, does it have to be on pretty level ground as well? Yes, it does. And of course, uh, Kentucky is not a flat state, so therein lies part of the problem sometimes with regard to expansion of our network, particularly in the eastern part of the state where it is more mountainous. We have some elevation there of upwards of 2,000 feet. So uh, that rugged terrain combined with the fact that uh, it can be difficult sometimes to get a strong cell signal, and that is a very important part of keeping a site operational, that means that sometimes there are some challenges involved in uh, selecting counties, especially out in the eastern part of the state where we have to find ground that is less than 5% grade. We also have to look for areas at least 100 feet away from uh, wooded locations. We don't want to be too close to trees, too close to buildings, because if we are, then we start to get uh, some contamination of the good data coming into that site. And we also want it to be on ground that is natural. In other words, we don't want to build on a gravel lot where grass is growing through that. We want it to be uh, as natural as possible when it comes to uh, weather instrumentation and building it. 
that's all really interesting. What all does it take as far as instrument wise? Like, what does that look like if someone's never seen a Kentucky mesonet location? Is there several instruments or just one or two? There are numerous instruments involved. So on the tower itself, at the very tip top, you have a wind propeller anemometer. So that's taking in the wind direction and speed. And that is at the 10 meter level on the tower. And our towers, by the way, are about 34 feet tall. You go underneath that. And at the nine meter level, we are taking temperature and then keep on going down to the two meter level, which is approximately six feet high. Uh, That's where we take in more data, including temperature, air pressure, dew point relative humidity. We also have a leaf wetness sensor at our sites attached to that two meter bar. And obviously uh, that is very advantageous when it comes to looking at evaporation rates, evapotranspiration rates at the different sites across the state. And then you go down beneath the ground and that's where we're measuring soil temperatures and soil moisture at the various depths. Now, I know at one of the talks that you gave for us just recently, you talked about some of these instruments can actually do, is it 3D images? Is that correct? Yeah, so we do have the capability with our webcams to look at infrared imagery, our different sites across the state. So that gives us a good idea of how vegetation is behaving. Is it too wet? Is it too dry? And of course, the webcams themselves, we continue to increase our fleet of those. We went from 23 webcams operational at the start of last fall in September. Now we're pushing 60. And I can tell you that even now, our field technicians are out and about at sites that that do not have webcams, installing those and deploying those. And we hope to have most of our sites fitted with real-time webcam imagery that will update every five minutes as opposed to every 15 or 30 as it had been previously for the sites that were equipped with webcams prior. So this is big news for us. It's also big news for the folks at the National Weather Service who warn for thunderstorm activity, emergency management, and it's good for the public use as well to, to be able to hop on the website and check out what's going on at the site near them. Yeah, I think that's huge, like for advancement. I don't know if you can slow that down in like real time, actual time, but that would be fascinating to watch. Um, little sidebar there. But speaking of access, how can the public access the Kentucky Mesonet site? And like you said, there's several counties on there you're working to add towards more. So where should people go to to check that out? So kymesonet.org, that is the site that will take you directly to the main page. Once you're there, the first thing you'll see will be the temperatures, at least right now anyway, I can tell you that our website is getting ready to undergo some changes, particularly with the main page. We are going to be adding a lot of new maps with a lot of different parameters, everything from 24, 48-hour weather comparisons to heating and cooling degree days, which come into play, especially as we get into the growing season, which will be upon us before we know it. We talk about degree days, that would be the difference there above and below 65 degrees as far as the amount of energy needed to heat things up or cool things down. Heat in the seas, apparent temperatures, wind chill values, and comparisons with those. A lot more of those parameters will be coming down the pike on our website soon. So we're very excited about that. We also have an app that is Kentucky Mesonet, which you can download for the iPhone or for the Android. I have it downloaded to my phone. In fact, it's usually the first app I check 
when I get up and rolling in the morning because not only can you get the current conditions there for the site nearest you, you can also look at a 36-hour forecast available from the National Weather Service tailored for that site. That's awesome. So you can take it on the go. You don't just have to be in front of a computer to watch it. So that's awesome. Is that a free app as well? Yes, that app is absolutely free. And I should point out, too, that uh, Kentucky Mesonet is under the hat of the Kentucky Climate Center. And we also have a website with that, kyclimate.org. The Mesonet site link is included in that particular web page. We also have hydrologic information there, agricultural information through uh, different links. You can see what's occurring with drought or lack thereof with the information that we have on that website as well. So kymesonet.org and kyclimate.org. Yeah, that's awesome, especially with all the different measurement tools that you all have. And it seems like spring brings the rain, but then the summer is more the drought. Fall can, I guess, go either way. In the wintertime, everybody's wanting to know, is there ice, is there snow? You know, what affects their crops if they're in the dormancy stage? And so that's just a, a wealth of options there. And I know my mind's blown. So, and I'll have to add that to my list about downloading the app. I do want to transition just a little bit because one of the main reasons I had you on the podcast was to talk to you about this recent change that they've added to the USDA plant hardiness zone. And, you know, for Kentucky, we have always, for as long as I can remember, I'll put it that way, we've always been in zone 6B. And in 2023, in the latter part, I think it was November, they switched that over to zone 7A. So can you talk to us? I know that you've been in weather for a long time. So could you tell us maybe a little bit about what climate trends that we're seeing for the state of Kentucky? Sure. So since the start of the millennium, particularly around 2000, we're getting warmer in Kentucky and we're also getting wetter in Kentucky. And because we're getting warmer, particularly during the winter season, we have seen that change in the plant zone hardiness from what was 6B for most of the state for a long period of time to now 7A for most of the Commonwealth, and that would include the Bowling Green area. In fact, even 7B conditions are creeping up now from out of Tennessee and into portions of far uh, southwest Kentucky and areas along the Tennessee line. And basically what that means is that because we're getting warmer, we are now seeing a hardiness of what was zero to minus five for vegetation during the winter season, now bumped up to zero to five degrees above. That would be for zone 7A. So some of the plants and vegetation that might have been optimal for growth in 6B, well, now they may be more susceptible to cold snaps since we have jumped zones. You take what happened in December 2022, for instance, right before Christmas, we saw the temperature in Bowling Green plummet from 50 degrees to sub-zero in about 10 hours' time. That shock, if you will, combined with the fact that we didn't have a whole lot of snow to go with that Arctic blast resulted in the loss of a lot of the tender vegetation from portions of the state. I know in my backyard, the dapple willows that once aligned my fence line there with my neighbor's yard, they did not survive that Arctic blast. And then some of the boxwoods were affected as well. Even now, mine are still trying to grow back from that bitter blast that we had in December 22. So that's one example of what can happen around here when we get to these sudden cold snaps 
uh, particularly with not a lot of snow cover. If you have deeper snow cover, you're going to have more insulated ground. In the instance of December 22, we didn't have much of that. And the snow we had was not enough to completely cover the ground, unlike what we saw, at least in the Bowling Green area and parts of Southern Kentucky, just a couple of weeks ago when we had anywhere from three to five inches of snow, even locally more. So the hope is that this go round, because of that, and combined with the fact that the soils are more moist now, certainly than they were back in the fall season, hopefully any damage to vegetation with this particular cold snap was very, very minimal. Only time will tell. Of course, we're still only in January. We've got a ways to go before things start to perk back up again as we head toward the spring season. But one thing that already looks different this year as opposed to last is that we don't have the early season growth of the spring flowers, like the, the daffodils, buttercups. They were already in bloom by the end of January last year. I'm not seeing that around the area this time. And of course, the cold mid-month was one reason for that. There are indications that we could be looking at more cold before the season is out, particularly in mid to late February. So that could slow the early season budding and blooming process. Whereas last year, uh, we already had some trees leafing out during the second week of February, including those dapple willows that I told you about earlier. So it's amazing how things can change from one season to the next here in the state of Kentucky. Yes. And I have to ask you, I know you mentioned there December of 2022, where we had so many phone calls as a result of all that. Um, people's boxwoods weren't looking well. It seems like the laurels got hit pretty hard. And there was another number ones too. But for December of 2021, you know, like when Bowling Green had the tornadoes just left, right, and here, there, and everywhere, it seemed like. And you mentioned we're warmer and we're wetter. I guess that's one of the trends that you're seeing too, especially for the month of December. Nobody really thinks about storm weather in the month of December. You know, I guess Kentucky with us being a transition zone, we can hit anything really. Yeah, anything goes here in Kentucky any time of year and any time of day. And December 2021 and that catastrophic tornado outbreak was a prime example that was an unusually warm month for Kentucky, back the warmest ever December for Bowling Green and a lot of surrounding cities. So when you combine the fact that the things are getting warmer, particularly in the winter season, you have more capacity for the atmosphere to hold more moisture, more water vapor. So if you get a strong storm system moving in to such an environment like you had there late on that night, December 10th, and into the wee hours of December 11, 2021, that's a recipe for trouble, particularly if you have some strong jet stream energy involved where the wind's about 5,000 feet off the ground or blowing 70 to 80 miles an hour. All the ingredients came together, unfortunately, that night for what was a terrible tornado outbreak. And Kentucky Mesonet was part of measuring just how fast those winds were in uh, some of the strongest storms. In fact, we set not one, but two wind records in the span of one hour at a couple of our sites in the western part of the state. The site near Mayfield, which is located to six miles outside of the city, measured a top wind gust of 107 miles an hour. That was at 925 on the night of December 10th. With that information combined with what they were seeing on radar, the folks at the National Weather Service in Paducah, responsible for warning that area, issued a tornado emergency for the city of Mayfield. Fast forward to one hour later, that EF4 tornado that moved through Mayfield and did so much destruction there, stayed on the ground through Marshall, Lyon, into Caldwell counties, 
Once it arrived at Princeton at the UK facility there, it produced a wind gust of 120 miles an hour, 120.1 to be exact. And that happened at 1030 that night of the 10th. So that is recognized as the new state wind record for Kentucky. That wind, by the way, actually destroyed our tower. We have just one piece of it, the very tip top remaining here, our operations center at Western Kentucky University. So that just goes to show that uh, we've got that power here with Kentucky Mesonet to measure the weather with real time every five minutes for advanced warning and for hazard mitigation and for saving lives. That's what it's all about. Exactly. And these tools are very helpful to kind of watch the weather and be alert. I was going to say, with a lot of the resources that you all have at Kentucky Mesonet, is there any other thing that we need to know about as further resources available? Sure. So there's a wealth of information when you go to our websites that I mentioned earlier. You could go to KentuckyMesonet.org, go to the data tab, which is about midway over. And if you want to see both monthly and yearly summaries for all of our 79 sites, it's available right there. So for instance, if you want to go check out the WKU farm site and see how things have trended all the way back to its inception in the late 2000s, you can go there and see how things have trended like during the month of June, for example, in the middle of the growing season. So what years had rather dry Junes as opposed to ones that were rather wet? How did temperatures compare and contrast? You go back to 2012, that's one of the years that's interesting to look up because we had a very terrible drought, a high impact event across the Commonwealth, particularly the central and the western part of the state where it was severe to exceptional during the summer and stayed that way all the way into fall. We haven't had a year quite like that since, but we've had some years where we've had these what we call flash droughts where we go from having uh, soils that are not necessarily fully saturated, but at least is sufficiently wet enough to all of a sudden being in moderate to if not severe drought. We had not one, but two of those last year. One happened to occur during the late spring to early summer months. We broke out of that in late June into July with plenty of rain. And then lo and behold, things turned dry again by the beginning of September and thus came a second drought, which turned into a hydrologic drought late fall into the early part of winter. At least now we're breaking out of that. But uh, you can also go to our website and look at soil temperature and moisture trends dating back several weeks for the 60 or so sites that include that data. You can even go back for the last couple of weeks and see when the, the January thaw occurred, when temperature is warm from all those days we had that were sub-freezing to going into the 40s, then going into the 50s. It was interesting, Kristen, to know that soil temperatures at a four-inch depth across parts of the state were hovering around 32 degrees as late as about January 22nd, 23rd. Well, once we warmed things up, we saw those soil temperatures, the topsoil anyway, bounce some eight to 10 degrees in just one day's time. So that change was pretty dramatic. And of course, as we get into the growing season, a lot of folks like to plant tomatoes, They're very time sensitive, very frost sensitive, as you know. So a good way to gauge how that topsoil is trending with temperatures is through our website at kymesonet.org. 
Yeah, I know after this winter season, it seems like people are ready and anxious to get outside and plant. And tomatoes is that number one vegetable that everybody likes to plant. And so when do we generally recommend for planting tomatoes according to that weather, like you said, for the frost-free dates? Because I know eastern Kentucky varies from south central even into the western part of the states. So what do you generally recommend there? Well, for northern and eastern parts of Kentucky, generally you want to wait until May. Usually the, the old adage goes, if you wait till after Kentucky Derby, which is the first Saturday of May, you're generally okay. And I think the same is also true for the central and western regions. We have four climate divisions, by the way, in the state of Kentucky. And even though it is warmer in the south and west generally than it is in the north and east, we can still have those seasons where we have these late season frosts that can do damage to tomatoes and anything that is not as hardy or as frost sensitive. I go back to four years ago, 2020. We had a very warm start to spring, particularly during late March into April. And then all of a sudden we had frost and freezing temperatures around May 8th and 9th, pretty deep into the month of May. That was damaging to the wheat crop, which had already bearded out and matured by that point and damaged or killed any tomatoes that had been planted by that point. So slow your whole gardeners when it comes to uh, planting things like tomatoes, squash, zucchini. I know if we go into these long stretches where it could be in the 70s or even the 80s, like in March and April, the temptation is to want to go ahead and put those into the ground. But you're never really free of frost and freeze around here until I think sometimes into the second week of May. That's especially true over the northern and eastern parts of the state. And by the way, we saw this last year, although it happened earlier, talked earlier about uh, the things budding out and leafing out with trees and vegetation so early in the year of 2023. And all of a sudden, here came the third week of March, right at the beginning of spring of the 20th, we had temperatures tumble into the teens. That did considerable damage to fruit crops, particularly the peach crop last year, not just here in Kentucky, but also into portions of the deep south. So that's one of the trends we've been noting here in this decade of the 2020s, where the winters are warmer, the growing seasons overall are getting longer. However, you have to be very careful when it comes to planting anything frost or freeze sensitive so soon, because if you get that late in the season where we drop below 32 degrees, and especially if we drop down to 28 degrees, that's what we consider hard freeze territory, that can be a very damaging to anything that's frost or freeze sensitive. I believe it was, was it 2007 or 2008 when we had that late spring freeze? Because it seemed like we had an earlier Easter because I can remember being in my Easter dress and it was <laughs> snowing outside. And it seems like we had that lot of damage to our landscape trees. And because I remember they just, they got a lot of damage from that too. But with all these dates that you've mentioned, I know we've mentioned several dates throughout the podcast here, but it seems like history has a way of repeating itself for sure, right? It does. And I remember it was 2007, the year you're referring to, where we had the Easter weekend freeze. That event was particularly sinister for a lot of the plants and vegetation because it was one of those years where we came out of one of the warmest marches ever here in Kentucky. A lot of days with highs in the low to even middle 80s. And then all of a sudden, temperatures crashed on Easter weekend. This was well into April. And then we had not only snow, but we had temperatures getting down into the lower 20s at a point where a lot of the trees had leafed out. So 
As a result, a lot of those leaves had that singed look. I remember losing boxwoods in my other home because of that event. I think I planted a cherry dogwood tree in my front yard that did not make it through that event. It was a young tree at the time. So that's another example of one of those late season frost and freeze occurrences that we seem to be getting more of here in recent years. I was going to say, going back to the tomatoes, I do remember that occurrence because it's like people had planted right after Derby Day. And then I remember everybody like scrounging to get buckets and whatever to cover it up. So you really need to be on the weather. And it seems like you've covered really well what Kentucky Mesnet can do. And hopefully our listeners can download that free downloadable app and put it on their phone and check, like you said, wherever the nearest location is. I know you're still, you said, working on getting things in the eastern part of the state. But it's so nice to have that information at our fingertips. And hopefully a lot of our listeners can download that. Shane? I know that you are on social media. Do you care to share how we can like follow you on social media? Sure. So we have a Facebook page for Kentucky Mezzanet, as well as uh, what is now X, formerly Twitter. <laughs> and you can follow us there for updates. You can also follow Kentucky Climate Center on uh, the X platform. We post several things throughout the day and throughout the week, ranging from U.S. Drought Monitor. And that, by the way, updates every Thursday morning. The indices for that are tabulated on Tuesday, and our state climatologist, Dr. Brodsky, is one of those that helps tabulate those indices, a lot of that information coming from our mesonet sites through soil moisture, and all that is fed into that drought monitor. So always watch for that every Thursday morning. We've seen some improvement there lately with all the rain that we've had, so we're hoping that the moderate drought condition that still exists for central and eastern parts of the state is eliminated with this next update. But you can check there on social media. We also repost uh, information from the National Centers for Environmental Information as they uh, put out some great data and stats with regard to not just Kentucky, but the Midwest climate region, which we fall underneath the hat of and also the Midwest Regional Climate Center that's based at Purdue University up in Indiana. They cover our region as well, and we like to repost the things that they send out on social media. So several ways you can follow us there. Yeah, I know that I enjoy some of your posts on social media just to check out, especially it was really comical, like during the winter season. And I think you all posted like a real cool bubble that was in like the cold. And I don't think I've ever witnessed that. So that was really eye-opening too. Yeah, so those frozen bubbles, that was a couple of weeks ago. We had uh, one person there from Taylor County send us a couple of shots in that real bitterly cold air. We had temperature sub-zero. It slowly blow those bubbles and then watch them freeze. So that was neat. We have a picture of the week that we post to our Facebook page as well as a Twitter page through the Mesonet. So we always get some really cool submissions that way. And you can email those to us as well. My email is shane, S-H-A-N-E dot Hollandy at wku.edu, or you can send it to kymesonet at wku.edu. Awesome. I guess my next, if we have another winter weather event, I'm going to try to get my four-year-old out there and try to <laughs> recreate that frozen bubble. So Shane, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. You're a wealth of knowledge and we're so lucky to have you in our area. So thanks again for joining us on the Sunshine Gardening Podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Kristen. Take care. 
Thank you for tuning in to today's episode of the Sunshine Gardening Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, make sure to follow me and leave a review on your favorite podcast platform. I would appreciate your support and feedback. Also, I want to extend a special thank you to Shane Hollandy for being our guest on the Sunshine Gardening Podcast. To access the show notes for episode 24 with Shane, please visit me on the blog at warrencountyagriculture.com. Remember, keeping yourself updated about the weather conditions can immensely impact the success of your garden. Whether you need to prepare for an unexpected frost or ensure maximum sunlight for your plants, being weather-wise is vital for a flourishing garden. Stay tuned for more insightful tips and discussions to elevate your gardening game. Until next time, happy gardening. Thanks for listening to the Sunshine Gardening Podcast with Kristen Hildebrand. If you enjoyed today's content, make sure to hit the subscribe button wherever you get your podcasts to catch future segments of the Sunshine Gardening Podcast. Gardeners, keep on digging and learning more about gardening so the sun shines brighter over your Kentucky garden. The Sunshine Gardening Podcasts with Kristen Hildebrand is a production of the University of Kentucky Cooperative Extension Service.